The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. It is not ancient Palestine or Israel. The story I'm telling you is set on Franklin Street, right out front of this church doors. It's rush hour, the hour when the city forbids even parking in the outside lane closest to the church, and it is a five-lane highway, if you're honest. If you've ever seen it at that hour, you know how it feels. People maxing out their speed in some efficient, desperate attempt to get home or somewhere else, wherever they are going, and anything that gets in their way, a red light, a piece of trash, a car that is being cautious in its driving or turning, they all come under the heading of an obstruction and are treated that way. And so too, apparently, can be a person bloodied and fallen and unable to get up. That person, and I have the permission to tell all of the stories that I am telling this morning, that person, this particular rush hour afternoon was Kathy Malone. Kathy, who lives just down the street a block from church. Kathy, who you can meet at the front desk almost every Sunday, volunteering to answer your questions or buzz you in. Kathy, who is in her 80s, everyone gave me their permission to tell their age. <laughs> White-haired, a mother, a neighbor, a retired social worker, one of the good ones, you know, in the universe, the ones we can't afford to lose. One day, she was walking home, and there was a person who Kathy could see from her training as a social worker who was not in her right mind at the moment, and so Kathy let there be some space and then she lost track of the person, and as she walked along Franklin, the person ran out from behind the wall that actually shelters part of one of our staircases on Franklin, the one we use the least, and ran out at her and shoved Kathy into the street. Before Kathy knew what hit her, she fell, hit her head, later found out she fractured her thumb, but also, Kathy had just had her, both of her knees replaced, and you're not allowed to get up and put pressure on your knees, and Kathy walks with a cane, so she's literally in the street, stunned and hurt, and completely unable to get up on her own. And the traffic is coming at her full speed. It could have ended there, right? A pedestrian offering their hand. The first car that came up on her could have stopped, put their flashers on, blocked and protected her, come out and helped her up, and called 911. Story over. Disaster averted. In fact, that's sort of what happened to another of our members this year, this fall, Millie Phillips, one of our affiliated community ministers. Millie coffee and stuff in her hands, was walking and got caught up on something on the sidewalk, didn't have time to stop her fall and let go with, was in her hands and fell on her face. Took a moment to figure out what was going on. Everyone who I will tell the story of today describes this moment of surveying their body 
for how everything is doing, stunned. And a woman stopped. The first person to walk by, a pedestrian, got down, bent down, asked Millie how she was. Millie said she wasn't sure. The woman waited, stayed with Millie until Millie was clear she was okay, okay enough to walk home, which she did, bruised and swollen for weeks. Kathy's story is a different story. Pedestrians gathered at the corner, a group of four young adults and a family of four, two adults and two children. She noticed, or someone tells her later from watching camera footage, stand and point at her. Worse, the cars that are coming up in the lane that faces her whip around so that the next car comes. Each of those a risk to her life. One car slows down enough to roll down the window and be like, are you okay? I mean, you laugh, right? I laugh, but it's horrific. And she's stuck there, stunned, maybe three minutes, maybe five. You know what a minute feels like when you're facing the end of your life with each rushing car. And finally, the family at the corner, we think, walked over and helped her up and asked her if she was okay. And when she said she was, which by the way, I don't think we should ever accept somebody's judgment that they're okay when they have a hit to their head, so let's take that away as a lesson. She went home. Over the summer, just so you know, another member, Carol Fleming, also in her 80s, missed a curb while in a parking lot and fell, also landing on her face, abrasions all along one side, clearly hurt. The reason I know these stories is because I saw all of them and said, what happened to you? She lay on the pavement. She finally also rolled over. There was a couple coming down the sidewalk, and they looked concerned, and they asked her if she was okay, and she said, no. And they said, is there anything we can do? And she said, I don't know. And they walked away. And then a car stopped and rolled down its window and asked, are you okay? And she said, no. And they said, can we help you? And she said, I don't know. And they drove off. For Kathy, this family finally stepped in and she would end up going to the urgent care and getting her injuries looked to, and they would heal, and that would be painful, but they would heal. And actually, the police would catch the person who pushed her into the street. It was a trans woman who was suffering from a schizophrenic break, and Kathy, being a social worker, advocated for this person to get help and treatment, and even that was something Kathy could metabolize easily and let go of, but what stuck was that there were no neighbors to save her from the trauma of being left to die in the road. Not for five minutes, three. I heard all of these stories in a three-week period, and it felt so ominous to me, and so hideous, and so important. And I asked, I was a little possessed, I asked anyone who would listen what they thought it all meant. What does it say about us as people? Or what would help? How do we stop this from being something that we can do? 
And I heard a whole bunch of answers, which made a lot of sense, maybe some that have come through your heads as you've listened, like the acknowledgement that all of us have gotten way too used to walking by our unhoused or struggling neighbors, particularly in this city and in the Bay Area, and that there is this dehumanization to us that happens when we get in the habit of the heart of watching and allowing the suffering of any to be something that we brush off. That age-old danger of dehumanizing anybody or seeing anyone as disposable, it ultimately, it doesn't know where to stop. And ultimately, no one is disposable. And this other thing came to mind as I was trying to make sense of this and hold it and figure out what we as a community do with it. All three of these people, members of our church, and I was thinking of something that I even shared relatively recently with all of you in a sermon, the Good Samaritan study at Princeton from the 70s. Was anyone here the Sunday that I, yeah, I should have some of you come up and tell it because I'll probably be boring telling it again and again. But the short answer is seminarians at Princeton Seminary told they're going to have to tell the story of the Good Samaritan talk about priming someone's mind. Some are told they're late to go give the lecture, some are told they're on time, and some are told they're early, and then they're sent across campus to go to this classroom and give this lecture on the story we heard a version of today. But in an alley on the way to the class, there is an actor who is bloodied and yelling out for help and moaning. And the study shows that those who are in a hurry, a very small percentage of them stop. And those who think they're on time, a larger percentage stop. And those who think they're early, an even larger percentage stop. Not everyone stops, which alone is astounding. But it does give us this other piece of information in a hurried up world about what gets in the way of seeing our neighbor as ourself and stopping how Another's pain can just seem like an inconvenience in a world where we're struggling to hold it all, and we keep losing perspective on what it is we ultimately should be trying to hold. And I've also been thinking a lot in the wake of these stories about how we all rely on the goodwill of others. I mean, all of us have people we love some who we love more than we can stand and we would give our lives to protect. But we cannot protect them in the world. And who we just send out into the world and that we do so trusting, if we reflect for a second about it, we do so trusting and believing that there are everywhere for our kids and our parents and our siblings and our friends, that there are people who will step in when they are in need. Everywhere we hope and we believe so that we can sleep at night, that there is a stranger who can stop an assault and there's someone who will help them to the hospital if they slip and break a hip or hit their head and have a concussion or call 911 if their blood sugar drops and they find out for the first time what it means to have diabetes. We rely on people to keep them safe wherever they are. 
My spiritual advisor told me this when I was scared about sending my kid off to college. Vanessa, she said, I believe, don't you, that there are more good people out there in the world than bad? Yes, I said. But what if the good people do nothing? Isn't that actually the worst fear we could say out loud? It's often said of ministry that we don't offer great revelations to one another, but what we do is try to remind each other of the things that we already know, but that we can forget, the anchor truths we need to keep anchored. So in part, this sermon is a reminder of what I know you already know, and what I do, and how dangerously easy it is to forget it, and how important it is to remember how everything, but also everyone we love in the world requires, if we are to care for the whole of it, that we remember that we are in some unsigned compact and agreement. The covenant of the golden rule that everywhere, everywhere are our neighbors, the stranger, the ones we have prejudice against, the one far away and confusing to us, the one in the Israeli bunker, the one in Gaza, the one bloodied and up close in the street, maybe mentally ill, maybe who's had a stroke and is in her 80s, maybe who was pushed by someone else, does it matter? So being in a rush gives way to the great compact when we remember, and you do so because that's what keeps your heart supple, and you do so because you hope someone else will help your mother up in whatever place you've trusted her in this universe. And yes, you and I, we can't do something about everything but we can keep trying to do this and this. We can do this thing right in front of us and we can maybe make changes in our life so we have the space to do that and it's a challenge. The Buddha, the word the Buddha, it means the one who is awake. And the challenge of course is that any of us have to figure out how it is to stay awake in all the ways that matter. And it's exhausting to be awake. So this is a reminder sermon to be on the watch for not being a bystander. Just this week, just at the greeting time, Santana told me that she and her friends were bullied on the street. I'm assuming because they assumed you were trans, Santana, I don't know. Yeah. I heard years ago about office managers, those who burned out and those who flourished, though their jobs were identical. And the finding was that those who burned out were the ones who were surprised when they came to the office and things went wrong. Felt exhausted or like a failure. Well, those who survived were the ones and thrived were the ones who came in every day saying, what is going to go wrong today? 
And I was wondering, maybe that's one orientation of the spirit we can cultivate in ourselves in this world where we don't want to be bystanders, where instead of going into the world and being like, oh my gosh, that's such an inconvenience for me to deal with that. Every day we say, what moral inconvenience to serve my neighbor will I have today? And then we're just ready for it because we want to be ready for it, right? We don't want to be bystanders. We want to be standing by and that we do whatever it is we need to do to cultivate the skills and the perspective and the spirit of someone who is standing by. We take Daniel's training. We practice speaking up in the mirror in small ways, speak our truth in love, get good at it. We practice in choosing not to care what others think about us because it's going to feel awkward. And anyway, as Martha Graham once said, what people think in the world of you is really none of your business. <laughs> we cultivate that, tattoo it on our arm or on a t-shirt, we write it. Maybe we do a daily meta meditation, right? So we practice loving ourselves and then extending out to everyone, so we step into the world that day. And maybe, maybe we take a self-defense class too, so we know how to protect ourselves and others when we want to do the intervention that might be necessary in moments that feel a little more scary. Or we learn the gifts of de-escalation, so we bring that tool into a heated moment. Maybe, maybe we brainstorm all the ways we can be standing by So let me end with a good story. I have permission to tell it. I don't know, 25 years ago, Erica Burens, which was her name then, and I, we were both in Washington, DC. She came to live in the parsonage with me because also I had lived with her family in her dad's parsonage in Boston when I was in seminary, but also Erica's great and it was fun to have her as a roommate. And she had this new boyfriend, and she wanted me to meet him. He showed up at the apartment, and then we all went out for dinner. He was mild-mannered and funny and smart. He seemed nice enough. On the way home from dinner that night, across the street from where we were walking, there was a man, and he was menacing a woman. Erica remembers it as a stranger menacing a woman. I thought it was her boyfriend. What's important is that this person was yelling at the woman and maybe had her by the shoulders. He was definitely being aggressive. And we all looked up, and this new boyfriend of Erica's said in a calm voice, will you guys just excuse me for a moment? And he cut across four lanes of traffic on this busy street. And Andy, that was his name, that is his name, he went up to the woman, looking at her and only her, with the man there, and said, are you okay? Do you need anything? And the woman deferred, but the man stopped yelling, and Andy waited, and the man walked away. And Andy crossed the street back to us. In a moment's notice, no hesitation, calmly, perversely, with no extraordinary power. Erica married that man. <laughs> to paraphrase the famous line from Jerry Maguire, Andy had us all at 
Will you excuse me for a moment? <laughs> there are good people in this world. We know a few. We count on them. We count ourselves among them. And we need to continue to remember that as people, good people who reconstitute the world, we are part of this great covenant, this golden rule tribe that is always standing by. Because everything we love in this world depends on having as few bystanders as possible. And everything depends on the answer we give to the question, who is my neighbor? And then our willingness to serve. O God of our understanding, by many names and no name at all, grant us the wisdom to know what to do in moments where we are needed, the practice to prepare, and the heart to step in. And please fill our world with people who do the same. Amen. I started my first software engineering job as an idealist. I knew that my industry needed more diversity, and despite my identity, I found ways to be part of the solution. I mentored women students who were interested in computer science. I also advocated that all free t-shirts that my company gave out should include women's sizes. While that's certainly a spoiled tech worker problem, company attire that only comes unisex is one way that women feel erased. But I had slip-ups, like when I was training to mentor an intern. In the training, we broke out into groups with one experienced mentor sharing tips and tricks with the rest of the group. My group of 10 had one woman in it. The presenter, a man, was using he and him pronouns when talking about a hypothetical intern. I knew that this was a way also that women can feel forgotten and othered. This dragged on for minutes. I immediately noticed it and wanted to say something. But in the moment, I froze up. I overthought what exactly to say. I was afraid and had what ifs flying through my head. As I was fretting over this while doing my best to listen and learn, the one woman in our group finally spoke up and asked the presenter to use neutral pronouns. He responded defensively, but um, you know, ultimately assented. Um, I had a brief thought of now speaking up to support her, but again, didn't quite know what to say, and the moment passed. I felt guilty and frustrated after this, like I had failed a next-level test in my ally journey. Luckily, just a few months later, I heard about something called an ally skills workshop and was able to attend. 
This workshop was created by a woman who had spent decades frustrated in the tech industry. She determined that women and others from marginalized groups were already doing everything they could just to stay in the industry and make things better as much as they could with their limited power. Further change required allies to step up because there are more of us and we have more privilege and usually organizational power as well. This workshop was revelatory for me. It had some lecture content, but most of the time was spent unpacking concrete scenarios. We didn't quite role play, but we would read a brief scenario and then discuss in groups how to respond, applying the principles that we had been taught. This served the same purpose as a fire drill. When a fire alarm is blaring, you might panic or freeze up, who knows? Different people will react differently, but most reactions will not be helpful. But if you've spent time rehearsing what to do, even if it feels silly in the drill, you'll be much more likely to act productively when needed. For example, we took the time to individually choose a line that we could say authentically when someone does or says something problematic. And we were encouraged to spend time at home practicing enough that it felt comfortable and easy. Recommendations were things like, we don't do that around here. Or even just, wow. But really anything that shows clear disapproval was fine. This could serve as a minimal response if it's all you can muster, or as a starting point before giving a more substantive and specific admonition. This afternoon workshop really did yield a night and day change for my ability to realize my ambitions of being an active ally. It gave me the confidence and tools to speak up when I saw situations that were oppressive. I would still have the fear, but I would sometimes speak up anyway. And the workshop also affirmed for me that no one has the capacity to challenge everything that we see. This was such a great workshop that I later learned how to facilitate it. I gave it a few times at work and then I adapted it here with ministerial intern Sherry Halliday Kwan and delivered it at USF in 2019. And next month, I'm bringing this bystander training back. There are details and sign-up instructions in the order of service, and I really hope you'll join us.